scriptures to Matthew chapter 1. Begin our journey through the book of Matthew. I love uh, God's providence. In God's providence, here we are in the Christmas season, and uh, I'm starting the book of Matthew, and very easily accessible to us at this Christmas season are these uh, first couple chapters that talk of Jesus' birth. I love God's providence in that. This week, an Australian woman named Veronica Thoreau was sentenced to 25 months in prison for lying on her resume to get a job as a CIO and making $185,000 a year. Her resume was filled with fabricated education, embellished work history, and false references. She even went to... I find this so audacious. Audacious. She even pretended to be one of her references when the hiring manager called. With any person that is being put in any position, especially positions of power, we want to know their background, don't we? We want to know whether it's presidents of countries, of companies, or or even simple country pastors. You want to know their background, don't you? You want to know if they're fit for the job. You want to know if they're, if they're the right person. And that is the question that Matthew comes right out of the gates answering in his gospel. The Jews have been waiting for the Messiah for over 2,000 years since Abraham. And the question is, and the question that, that Matthew puts before us and then begins to answer here is, is Jesus fit to be the Messiah? Is he fit for the position? What's his background? Is he the promised snake crusher that we hear about in Genesis 3? Is he the one through whom all nations are going to be blessed? Genesis 12. Is Jesus the shoot that comes out of the stump of Jesse that we just read? And Matthew answers these questions in a form that, that it isn't easily accessible for us in the form of a genealogy. So look with me at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. 
And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zodak, and Zodak, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations of Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Please bow and pray with me. Father God, Father God, we thank you for all those men and women who are in the line of our Christ. We thank you for how you have preserved that line and how you have uh, sculpted that line for this very moment. You had in mind this very moment me preaching these verses when you created the world. Help me, Lord, to do it well. In Jesus' name, amen. So Matthew is one of the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Synoptic meaning seen alike, seen together. They take a similar view of Jesus' life. Unlike John, who has a different agenda for his gospel, these three have the agenda of, of looking at Jesus' life like, like holding a diamond and looking at it from a different point of view. You're going to get a different perspective on Jesus' life, three different perspectives. We're going to be looking at Matthew's perspective on Jesus' life, what the Holy Spirit has, has inspired him to see, to remember, and to convey to us. Matthew's gospel is probably written between the, the, uh, the years 50 and 80 AD, somewhere in that vicinity, written by one of the eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry, Matthew, also called Levi. He was a Jew, and he was a tax collector. This is probably one of the reasons that, that Matthew's gospel has a, has a decidedly Jewish flavor to it, if you will a Jewish perspective. It seems to be written with the Jews in mind. It seems that we see this through the many prophecies that are referred to in this gospel. Over 40 direct prophecies quoted here and, and a couple dozen more alluded to. The Jews would pick up on that as a Gentile audience wouldn't. 
We also see this through the numerous interactions that, that Matthew seems to uh, show us between the Jews and Jesus and the confrontations that they had. We see this through the massive amount of rabbinic-style teaching that Jesus does. Matthew holds probably the most teaching of any of the Gospels. And we see this through the multiple indictments of the Jewish belief. The strongest of any of the Gospels is, is contained in the book of Matthew. But right here we, we see the particular Jewishness in that Matthew starts his Gospel in a very Jewish way, very Jewish way, with a genealogy. He starts his Gospel with a genealogy. Genealogies were critical to the Jewish people. They kept that by them they kept their their ethnic identity. By them they they proved their uniqueness in the world, their their called outness from the world. By them they they ground themselves in in their own history. To us, genealogies are are, are quite boring. I get that. You know, when you woke up this morning and, and saw that it was Matthew 1, 1 through 17, you probably went, okay, I hope he can read the names. <laughs> we usually skip over these devotions. But to a Jew, this, this very list would make them sit on the edge of their pew. They, they would look and they would study and they would listen for certain things. And the first thing that they would hear that would, that would make them, perhaps if they were dozing in synagogue, that would make them, their eyes flash open is the words Jesus Christ in verse 1. That name of Jesus would jump out at them as it does for us. But it would jump out to the Jew for a different reason because Jesus, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is a, a, a moniker, if you will. It's a, it's, it's a title. It's something that the Jew had been waiting for for 2,000 years. See, Christ is the Hellenization or the Greek form of Messiah. And so, so Matthew, right off the bat, is saying this Jesus is the Messiah. This Jesus is the long-awaited one right here. He is the, the, the snake crusher. He is the, the one that you've been reading about in your scriptures for millennia that they have longed for. But Matthew also knows that these same Jews that are reading this will need proof that this Jesus, that he just claimed as the Messiah, is the real Messiah. In the very next words, he writes, he is confirming it. He writes, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. There's the confirmation right there. That's what he's doing. He's confirming who Jesus is. If you look at verse 1, Jesus Christ, the son of David. Matthew is going to claim throughout his gospel that Jesus is the Christ. The one thing he had to better prove in the Jewish minds is that this Jesus came from David's bloodline. And that's the one thing he's doing in verses 2 through 16. He's, if you notice, he's tracing Jesus back to who? King David. 
intentionally. While Luke's genealogy shows the paternal lineage of Mary, Matthew's genealogy is more concerned with his royal lineage, proving that he is the son of David. And that's absolutely critical to the Jews, because no matter what, who claimed to be Messiah, and there were many who claimed to be a Messiah, if he didn't have the bloodline of David, that was not him. Like the British royal line that we all know a little better, a little more familiar with, if you're not related in blood, you're not in the royal lineage. And it was a promise given to David 950 years previous to Christ. God told David, when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. God was promising David on that day that somewhere down the line in his lineage, there will come somebody who will rightfully sit on his throne again. God reinforced and reminded his people throughout the centuries of this promise. This was a major promise in the Old Testament. The Messiah will be David's son. We see this in the prophet Jeremiah in in chapter 23. He says, the days are coming when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will wisely do wisely and do what is just and right in the land. Listen to what Isaiah said in that all-familiar Christmas passage in, in Isaiah 9. He writes, A child will be born, a son will be given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end, and he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. There again is the promise. God is pulling that thread from 2 Samuel 7, throughout the centuries. And a little later, Isaiah writes of the, of the Messiah, the shoot that will come from the stump of Jesse, as we read earlier. You see, in 586, David's royal lineage stopped. In other words, there was not going to be another king who will sit on the throne of Israel. The Babylonians took that away. And the Persians didn't reinstate it. And the Greeks didn't allow it. And the Romans certainly weren't going to allow it. So here the Israelites were were waiting for this royal line that has been stumped off in 586. But Isaiah says, 700 years before Christ, there will be a shoot that will come out. A new king that will come from the line of David. You think it looks dead and gone but there will be a king who will sit on his throne. Now the Jew on the street might not know all the expectations, all the prophecies of the Messiah that are found in the Old Testament, but they knew one thing. He had to be David's son. They needed confirmation of that bloodline. And Matthew is saying, here it is. Here's the confirmation. Let me trace it for you so that you can see it as well. Here is your king. And that's the theme that we're going to see over and over in this gospel. Jesus is king. 
of his kingdom. You'll see it in chapter 12 and 15 and chapter 20 and 21. You'll see it all over the place. That's what the New Testament confirms over and over again. Jesus is the son of David. 2 Timothy 2.8 says, Paul writes to, to uh, Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. Remember that. Jesus Christ is the heir to David's throne. And that's what he's saying to you and me today as well. We may not be Jews. Some of you might. But we're in the family of God. And he's saying, here is your king through this genealogy. Here he is. Jesus Christ is heir to the throne, not of David, but of your heart. You are the vassal of King Jesus living in his Upside-down kingdom. I've I've titled this series The Upside-Down Kingdom because over the next year or so, as we see our, our King Jesus challenge us over and over again to live differently than the world around us, it will seem countercultural what Jesus tells us. Put others before yourself. No, really, put others before yourself. It'll seem counterintuitive. As he says, love your enemies. Think of somebody that you have bitterness and resentment toward. No, love them. It's going to seem strange, like like be the first one to forgive. Leave, Leave whatever you're doing in worship at the altar and go be reconciled with your brother. It's going to seem odd where he's going to tell us over and over again, listen, the world worries about tomorrow an awful lot. We're called to be different. Don't borrow trouble from tomorrow. It's going to look peculiar, like living a radically generous life. So radical that, as C.S. Lewis puts it, we can't do certain things we want to do because of our giving. The world says, what are you kidding It's upside down, like giving your life for the sake of people that don't deserve it. And that's what our King Jesus modeled perfectly, isn't it? Romans 5 says, at just the right time, while we're still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. He's describing us. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his love for us when we were still sinners, enemies, running in the opposite direction from God. Christ died for us. That's living an upside-down world. Through the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to be called by our King to live what the world will look at us and say, that's the wrong way to live. But really what's happening as the Spirit uses the Word over the next year in our life, we begin to see that, no, 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 no. The truth is, is that this is the right way to live and the world is upside down. I pray that that's true for all of us.
The second name that would pop out to us as we look at this is the name Abraham. In verse 1, again, Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. There was also a, a, an expectation for the Jew that the Messiah would be in the lineage of Abraham, would be a Jew, one of the chosen people. And this genealogy is validation of that as well. It's confirmation that he comes from the bloodline of David and it's validation that he is a Jew. One of the other differences between Luke's genealogy and and Matthew's is who they go back to. Who is the beginning of the line? Here in, in, in Matthew, we see he takes it back to Abraham because he wants to stress the Jewishness of Jesus. But Luke takes it all the way back to Adam. Luke was written for a Gentile audience. And so the Spirit in, in inspired him to take it back to the, the origins of man, saying the gospel is for all man. Matthew, on the other hand, goes back only as far as Abraham, the father of the Jewish race. If you remember Abraham... In Genesis 13, he was living a fine and comfortable life in Ur. He was wealthy. He had kids. He had wives. He was fine. And God called him out. God appeared to him, it says in Acts, and called him out. And this is what the Lord said to him at that time. Leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all nations will be blessed through you, Abraham. God promises three things in in what he said here. He promises God will form a covenant people from Abraham. There will be a great spiritual nation that comes from him. Second, he gives the promise of a great inheritance. There will be God's people in God's place. They will have a geography. And finally, and most significantly, God will use a descendant of Abraham to bless the whole world. All nations will be blessed through you. This I keep putting to you is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. All nations will be blessed through you. There will be a descendant of Abraham that will bless the whole world. And Matthew is telling us through this genealogy, Jesus is that person. He's the person who's going to bless the whole world. And that's what we're going to be going to see unfold throughout the pages of Matthew's Gospel again and again. Jesus is going to bless the whole world. But he's going to bless the whole world in an unorthodox way. He's going to bless the world in an upside-down manner. The blessing is not going to come through a victorious uh, uh, battle army general. Not through strength, but through weakness. He's not going to conquer the Roman armies. He's going to cry out on a lonely cross. Not by living a victorious life, but by dying a shameful death. This blessing will not come as we expect it. 
but by the unexpectedness of it. That's the mission. And that mission is to bless, as seen here, through four windows. Those windows are the women that we see in this genealogy. Through these women, we see Jesus' mission. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah the Hittite. Uriah uh, the Hittite's wife, Bathsheba. Henry Ironside wrote, What a list this is, how it tells, it tells out the grace that is in the heart of God, who in his sovereignty chose to bring these women into the line of promise. And each of these women gives us an insight into the unexpected grace that God brings. The, the, the blessing he brings, but in an un, unexpected manner. Like his mission to bring outcasts into the family of God. Like Tamar. This is the upside down kingdom is, is going to include people like this. These outcasts, these dejected, desperate outcasts like Tamar. If you remember this story in Genesis 38, Abraham's grandson Judah had three sons, and his eldest son married Tamar. Ur married Tamar. Ur died, and it was the custom in that, at that time for the next brother to marry that woman so that his line would go on. The next brother in line was Onan, and he refused to do that. And Judah withheld his third son from Tamar. So Tamar was an outcast in the very family she married into. See, Tamar, and that is who Jesus was born for, the outcasts in society, those whom the culture looks down on, those whom the culture rejects. Those whom the culture rejects, Jesus seems to accept. It's interesting, America was built on that same principle. If you look on the Statue of Liberty, there's a quote that is pretty familiar that says, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these, the homeless, the tempest tossed to me. That would be a very fitting subscription to the kingdom of God. Jesus says to all the outcasts, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus came to give rest to the outcasts. He ate and drank with publicans and sinners. He touched the refuse, the wretched, those you shouldn't touch. I sometimes think, when we get to heaven... we might be a little surprised as to who is there. We might be. There'll be many from whom the world has cast aside and forgotten, dismissed. I think of the parable that Jesus told of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus was covered with sores and eating at the crumbs of the table, yet he goes to heaven and the rich man doesn't. Kind of an upside-down kingdom. Because Jesus does not look at the person the way the world does externally. He never looks at the external. 
He always looks at the internal. He's consumed with who you are. It's not what you have. It's who you are. It's not what you know. It's what you believe. It's not your human pedigree. It's your spiritual pedigree. Secondly, Jesus' mission was to make friends of enemies. Make friends of enemies, just like Rahab. Rahab, if you remember, lived in Jericho, in Canaanite land, a land that rejected God, and Jericho, a city that was resistant to God's people. And yet in that land, in that city, the Lord reached down and showed mercy on a woman named Rahab in Jericho. The civil war had just ended and the northerners were lording over, lording it over the southerners pretty well. Early on, Lincoln did something that many people were aghast to. He admitted into his office an audience of disgruntled southerners and allowed them to air their grievances freely. They entered bitter and angry, ready for a fight, but apparently Lincoln's gentle demeanor thawed the Southerners and they left with a new respect for Lincoln. One of the Northern um, uh, congressmen came into Lincoln's office right after that and criticized Lincoln for befriending the enemy. You know what Lincoln said? I'm not Am I not destroying my enemies by making them my friends? And that's what Jesus was born to do. To make his enemies into friends. First Colossians 1 says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, and free from accusation. You see, we were all like Rahab at one time, enemies of God. That's how we're born, enemies of God. But there came a time when you realized, if you're sitting here and call yourself a Christian, there came a time in your life, maybe it was a day you remember or a, or a time period in your life, but there was a time in your life when you realized you needed something. You realized your need, that you could not save yourself, that you couldn't work hard enough, that you couldn't scrub deep enough, that you were a sinner in need of forgiveness. There had to have been, if you call yourself a Christian, there has to be a time in your life when that is true. I need forgiveness. Because I can't do it myself. And you learned how Jesus came and lived this perfect life. Oh my goodness, I fall down all the time. But, but Jesus lived a perfect life. One that you can't, one that I can't. And somewhere along the line, someone had to have told you that even though Jesus was under no obligation to do so, he willingly walked up that hill and laid down and allowed himself to be crucified. 
Someone had to have told you along the way about how Jesus willingly gave his life for yours. You had to have been told somehow, some way, that Jesus substituted himself for you. You had to have learned somehow that, that God's wrath for your sins directed at you became directed at Jesus because you believed the gospel and that he took your punishment that you deserve and suffered and died. Somewhere along the line, if you call yourself a Christian, you had to have believed that. And it changed you. And his righteousness, his perfect record before God was put in in your account. That's what we call conversion. You trust Christ, that he lived the life you cannot and died the death that you deserve. And that he became an enemy of God so that you could become a friend of God. That's the great transaction that happens on the cross when you believe this in your heart. And that's part of what we celebrate at Christmas, this, this great peace we have with God. On the night that Jesus was born, we, we read that the that heavens opened up and, and angels started singing, right? And what did they sing? Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to men on whom God's favor rests. That's what Christmas is all about. Peace with God. Making God's enemies his friend. Through Ruth, we see that Jesus' mission was to reach out to the prohibited. In verse 5, Ruth is mentioned. She, along with two other women in this list, are foreigners. But she was a Moabitess. She was from Moab. And if you remember the, the biblical story, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, they went up to Moab and they needed help, and Moab would have nothing. He said, said get away from us. And because of that, the Jews never had a great relationship with that nation. And God pronounced a judgment on that nation. In Deuteronomy 23, he said, no Moabite will ever enter my assembly. In other words, because of what they had done, they were prohibited from coming into God's presence ever. That's why the book of Ruth is not only a sweet story of dedication and sisterly love, it's also a pretty scandalous book. Naomi's sons not only married Moabitesses, but Ruth is welcomed into the family of God and into God's very lineage, into Jesus' lineage. And that mention of her in the genealogy foreshadows Jesus' mission to reach out to people who think they're prohibited from the kingdom of God. There again is this upside-downness of Christ's kingdom to include those whom you and I think should be prohibited. 
A new book just came out this week, and I got a little sample of it. It's a book by Mez McConnell, who is a uh, pastor in Scotland. And the book title is The Creaking on the Stairs. Rosaria Butterfield reviewed it and highly recommends it, but adds this. It's the most disturbing book I've ever read because it recounts McConnell's horrific abuse at the hand of his stepmother between the ages of 2 and 13. The book is a book that confronts the horror of child abuse with this question. Not only can I forgive that person, but should God forgive that person? These are good questions. In it, Mez describes how she beat him and locked him in cupboards overnight hungry, knocked him unconscious for failing to wipe a dish correctly, extinguished cigarettes on his arms, and stripped him naked in front of strangers and mocked him. Can you imagine anybody doing that? However, Mez confronts in rare honesty his struggle between wanting her to have, quote, her spiritual Nuremberg moment before Almighty God to pay for what she did to me and my sister and the gospel call to forgive. That's his struggle. Here we see that Jesus' mission is to forgive the unforgivable, is to bring in the prohibited, like Zacchaeus and Matthew, tax collectors, like Roman centurions and Roman governors, like lepers who are untouchable, the lame, those whom the Jews prohibited. That's part of Jesus' upside-down kingdom mission, to bring into the family of God those we think should be prohibited. Like these women. Ruth, a Moabitess, Rahab, a harlot, Bathsheba, an adulteress. One of the questions in the discovery notes this week is to think of a person in your life that would be an unlikely candidate for salvation. Who is it? For Mez, it was his stepmother. Who is it for you? Jesus' forgiveness can extend to that person too. Briefly, Lastly, obviously, Jesus' mission was also to save people from the consequences of their own sin, like Bathsheba. In verse 6, the wife of Uriah is mentioned. This, of course, is a reference to Bathsheba, whom David slept with, whom David murdered her husband for. Bathsheba had a child through that affair. And the consequences of David and Bathsheba's sin was that the sword would never leave David's house, meaning his, his family life would be a tough one. And the other judgment was that the baby would die. What a terrible judgment. What a terrible consequence for sin. And through that, God is saying, that is the consequence for sin. Death. 
the consequence of sin is death. Told Adam, if you disobey by eating the forbidden fruit, you will die. Genesis 3. Paul wrote, the wages of sin is death. Romans 6. If you sin, if I sin, no matter how small or how large, no matter how few or how many, no matter if it was on, by accident or on purpose, spiritual death is the consequence of sin. That's the spiritual law. Separation from God eternally. And what we celebrate at Christmas, at least in part, is that that's why Jesus was born. So that we wouldn't have to have that consequence for our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that God made him, Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God, God's children. He saves us by taking the consequences for our sin on himself. And that's what this table is really telling us each week as we tell it, as we as we celebrate it. It's telling us that that Jesus took his body And he said, I will take the consequence of sin in my body. You will see the physical ravages of sin displayed in my body. And that's what he was telling his, his disciples on that night when he, when he gave thanks for the bread and he broke it. And as he was breaking it, he said, this is my body broken for you. I'm willing to take the consequence of for your sin in my body. And he told us throughout the millennia, do this in remembrance of me. Don't just remember that I existed. Remember why I existed. Elders, please come up.